0: Hi everybody my name is sean benson and welcome back to punch kick choke chat it's uh thursday night it's actually an hour earlier than usual for me i'm uh i'm in a condo in winnipeg right now and um i just want to say how happy i am that you're all here i'm so excited to chat with our guest, and i was Remarking that you know this show started to get legs to the point where I've done an episode from Quebec now I'm doing one in Winnipeg and I was thinking oh is this our eleventh or our fourteenth episode and realized it's our seventeenth so I want to thank you all for 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 chiming in and keeping this thing going I was blown away by that I, I really can't believe that next because we do it by threes next week will be eighteen so thank you for watching this is such a privilege and. um You know, we all chat to make sure our guest is logged in beforehand. And I kind of feel like we get the rehearsal dinner of the wedding that happens the night before because we get (laughs) some really good chats and stories. And um, it's one of the honors of me being a part of this show. So as you know, I'm really grateful. And I'm also always grateful to introduce Sensei Niklas Suino. Um, who is uh, a teacher, a friend, and he is an eighth Dan in Iaido, a sixth Dan in Jiu Jitsu, a sixth Dan in Judo. And I always try and think of a different way to uh, introduce him, but I know that our guest tonight is also a judoka, and I just wanted to say, Sensei Suino, you know, with with all the Jiu Jitsu I I do, in addition to my karate, I've probably easily had 500 roles, maybe a thousand. And the only people I've never taken down are the Judo guys. Uh, I can get a wrestler now and then, any stand-up background guides back and forth. But what the fuck, pardon me, what the heck is it about you judo guys? How are you and why are you so good?
1: Ah, well, thank you. I'm great. And uh, you're just going to have to come down and find out. Mm. (laughs) Mm. Please. Yeah, well, we're at, um, so as of yesterday here in Michigan, we are at the um, in-person but no contact level of martial arts. So we have to still stay six feet away from each other. Which makes judo and jujitsu a little hard, um, but we're trying to be creative and make the make the best of it until we get some more some more opportunities to train. But yeah, uh, Sean, you gotta. Um, well, I, I have a feeling we're going to get the whole family here together
0: yeah.
1: uh, when we finally can, and have a workout that just it will be second to none in every martial art that we've talked about. Uh, thank you so much, Sean, for the for the introduction. It falls to me each week to introduce Sensei Randy Dofang, who's a longtime friend. Um, those of you who are new to this podcast uh, may or may not know that, that uh, Randy is extremely high-ranking in karate. He's a world champion. He's a student of Hanchi Legacy, which in one way is what's make made all this possible. Um, he's also high-ranking in Iaido, an instructor in Iaido, um, a student of me. Uh, we've spent time together in dojos in St. Thomas, Ontario, in Kitchener, Ann Arbor, uh, Tokyo for judo, karate, iaido, aikido. We spent time at one another's homes. Um, um, I, I know his children and love them, uh, and I know he reciprocates. Um, and, and most importantly of all, he knows I'm always looking out for him and expecting him to be better tomorrow than he is today, and I know that he expects the same of me. Randy, it's so good to see you, even virtually. Uh, uh, can't wait for today's conversation and uh, hand it over to you.
2: Thanks so much for that, Sensei, yeah. It's that expectation, that's one of the fuels that drives you, I think, as a martial artist. If you have a lot of respect and admiration for your teachers, which I do, Sensei Legacy and Sensei Suino, um it's easy to just chase after something that's right in front of you that you're trying to achieve, it's, it's uh, inspirational. And so thank you to both of you for uh, doing that. Um, I don't know. Uh, this is different. People have said this is my thing, but it's not my thing. It was the seed in my brain, and when I asked the people on this uh, call, "Is this a good idea?" They all said yes, and now it's become our thing. But because it was my seed, I get to introduce the the big guns. Right. So tonight I get to introduce Anchi Legacy and Anchi uh, Merriman, and I'm gonna say a couple of things about Anchi Legacy, like I always do, because um, you never know who signed in, but He's a 10th Dan. Uh, he was inducted into the Canadian Black Belt Hall of Fame in November. Uh, he's a student of Harold Warden. He's a disciple of Benny Allen, a student of Richard Kim, and currently he's a student of Anthony Sandoval. Um, funny story about Sense of Legacy is uh, once he was in San Francisco doing a Tombow seminar with Richard Kim, and, you know, we were all this student, no matter When you look and you see somebody's a 10th and an eighth and a ninth and a seventh and they were once a first end or a white belt. They were once something else and they worked themselves towards that. And when Sensei Legacy was once not a 10th then and he was training in San Francisco with Sensei uh, Richard Kim, Sensei Richard Kim, they were doing a Tombow seminar, said, don't do this move because if you do it, the Tombow is going to come flying out and you won't be able to control it. And the person that Sensei Legacy was working with, of course, when they did the thing, Sensei Legacy decided, I'm going to do that move. He said not to do. And when he did it and cranked on the tombo, the tombo went flying through the air. And Master Kim was standing there looking in one direction, and the tombo went right past his face and climbed onto the ground. and And, of course... It wasn't hard for, for Master Kim to figure out who it was, because Sensei Legacy was the only person without a tombo. So <laughs> so that's, that's the one thing I wanna say about Sensei Legacy. Another thing I wanna say is, I've said this for a couple of episodes, but I went today to the printers and I saw Sense of Legacy's book churning off of the machine. It was like coming off. So by the weekend, we're gonna have 200 copies of this. Um, the other thing I did today was I just took a, I took a page out of Sensei book and I walked around my dojo tonight. I wasn't teaching tonight. Uh, Victoria Feth, one of my students was teaching tonight. And I went around to the black belts. I even went around to some of the parents, one of them being Christine, my girlfriend. And I said, um, if you could describe Hunchy Legacy in one word, only one word, you can't use two words, you can't use five words. What would the words be that you would use to describe him? And so, um, You know, one of the words that came out was gentle, that Hanchi Legacy is a gentle person. Another word that came out was scary, that he's a scary person. Uh, Another word that came out was serious. This is two words because not every student can follow instruction, but another student said badass, right, that he's a total badass. Um, uh, One of the young men in my dojo who's a green belt said, I've always thought of him as intelligent another student said that he's strong one of the students said that again two words they can't just stick to the program one word but they said he's hard working and and then the word that i added to the mix was as i said unwavering that was the word that uh, i would use to describe sense of legacy so on that note that's how i'm going to describe sense of legacy tonight and that's the story that i'm going to tell everybody about him and now we're going to move on to haunchy merriman so Hanchi Merriman is a 10th Dan in Karate. He's a third Dan in Kodakan Judo, and he's a first Dan in Jiu-Jitsu. He started his training in Judo in 1960. Um, Hopefully the rest of you are gonna get to hear some of the stories that we just got to hear. (laughs) Um, um, He has been the head coach of both the AAU National Karate Team and the USA National Karate Team. Uh, That team competed in the Pan Am Games in 1995. Uh, And he coached the U.S. team to gold, silver, and bronze at the WUCO World Championships in Madrid, Spain. Uh, On that team was a name that people will know, which is Billy Blanks, who won a silver medal on that team. Um, He is a student of uh, very well-known names. uh, Peter Urban, Chris Dabais, So Wong in Judo, uh, Nakabayashi Sadaki and Miyazato Ichi, who is a student, uh, senior student of uh, Miyagi Chojan, and as well, Iha Koshin. Uh, official Karate Magazine named him one of the top 10 competitors in 1974. And another thing that the rest of this call didn't get to hear is that um, when Hanchi Merriman was older than Hanchi Legacy, Hanchi Legacy found him himself in the unenviable position of having to referee him Uh, to do a kata and he was nervous and since legacy said that he far exceeded any expectations that he would have had that he was it was the easiest decision he ever had to make in awarding him the first place Um, he also has been a head referee at the first wuko world championships in tokyo japan something very interesting that i found was that he was a bodyguard to both diana ross and one of my all-time favorites, my favorite rock band of all time is Kiss, and he was a bodyguard to Gene Simmons, who I actually met a number of times, Hanchi Merriman. I, I've met Gene Simmons at least four or five times. Because really? my, cousin, my cousin was his sa- the sound and pyrotechnics person uh, for their their stage show. Um, oh,
3: wow.
2: So uh, some of my thoughts are, when I think of Hanchi Merriman and what I, Uh, The things that I've read, martial arts comes first and nothing else gets in the way. Uh, He told this story, but I had already read about it. In 1962, he moved uh, from where he was living to New York City, away from his wife and children. And he lived in the dojo where he was training in judo and karate, and was sending money back to his family because martial arts had gotten into him. And that was his thing. Uh, in 1970, he opened Karate International in Connecticut um, and one of the things that I, I think about is uh, when I think of a person like Hanchi Merriman is I I think of when I used to fight with Sense of Legacy a lot and he used to say to me, I'm not fast, Randy, I'm not that fast. And of course, Hanchi Legacy was and is very fast, right? But uh, but one thing I know is that he didn't have to be fast to be able to beat me up or train with me. like. That wasn't a requirement for him um and i've learned that now like 30 years later when i train with students of mine who are faster and stronger than me that i don't need to be faster than them i just need to be more experienced than them and i just need to be smarter than them and i only need to be fast enough and when i think of auntie merriman i think of a person who's reached the top one percent of all martial artists on the face of the earth when it comes to that level of experience and that level of understanding. Uh, he has super deep thoughts on Bankai and application and how they apply to different situations and different people and different body types. And before I turn it back to you, Sean, I just wanna say a couple of, of quotes that I found that he has said, which normally I don't get the quotes, Chi Merriman, until we do the show and I think about them after, But I already started thinking about these yesterday when I read them. Life is a cycle. We come in bald with no teeth, and that's how we leave. (laughs) Karate is about thought, not just physical ability. Inner strength is what endures. Right? I like that. The purpose of Goju. Be as hard as the world makes you, and as soft as the world will allow you to be. I love that. I'm going to think about that so much. So, Hanchi Marilyn, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. That's my introduction
0: for you and I'm going to
2: turn it over to Sean Benson.
0: Thank you so much. Yep, um, I just wanna to say to everybody watching in the bottom uh, the chat is where you can send your questions in and Robert, our incredible uh, behind the scenes tonight, he's gonna funnel those to any of us to ask, uh, Sensei Merriman on your behalf. And um, as well, as always, this is just a chat. If you don't like the language or the content, um, this week, I'm even going to go so far as to say, hey, we apologize for it. Not every show is for everybody, but I promise you, if a moment doesn't suit you, there'll be a moment right after that does, because that's what we're doing <coughs> here. We're breaking it open. And uh, I just want to say how excited I am tonight. Hachi Merriman, it's such a pleasure to have you. How do you feel uh, hearing your introduction?
3: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I thought it was great. Now I got to live up to it, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, um, No, thank you for having
0: me. So let me just start at the beginning the way we like to do, because I know you have so much to tell, and and we may as well start at the beginning. You grew up in Connecticut, and you made your way into a judo dojo in 1960. Right. What brought you in the front door, and what kept you there?
3: Um, I was, at the time, I was working at uh, General Dynamics building submarines. Uh, Groton, Connecticut is noted for the submarine capital of the world. Mm. And uh, I was working with a guy and he kept talking about this judo thing that he was doing. And uh, I got interested, in, I'd heard about judo, you know, but I never, didn't know anything at all about it, just heard the name. And so I started asking him questions about it. And so he said, well, you know, why don't you come up one night and I'll introduce you and ask Sensei if you can watch class. So I said, yeah, okay. And I went and I watched, and that was, like I said, there, there was never a team player in the sense of like being involved with teams. And uh, I saw this one-on-one thing, and it just caught me. Fell in love with it right away. And um, asked if I could watch, and I watched. He let me come back for about a week and watch classes, but not get on the floor. And then one night he just told me, he said, well, when you come back, bring some sweat clothes with you, and we'll give you a try. And that was how I began.
0: And you just got hooked from that point forward? Oh, yeah,
3: um, was yeah. Was that it? like,
0: once you than, started? I you more than in?
3: hooked. I if there's another word for it, I was even more than hooked. That's Addicted. all I could think of. I couldn't, and uh, I, I started, of course, at that time, there were no, um, being able to research was very difficult because there was no there was internet, there was no hardly any books out or anything like that. So uh, everything was kind of word of mouth. And then, uh, because in the area that I lived, uh, that was the only judo that was going on at the time, uh, martial arts at all. So uh, the next, you had to go to Boston and New York to, uh, to get any information from anybody, and um, of course, once I moved to New York, started living in the dojo, then I was I had access to a lot of people that were involved in judo at the time in that area. So then, any chance I get, I would talk to them and I take notes down and you know things that they tell me and uh, where to look for this. And there was one book, two books out at the time. That came a little bit after I started by a name, named, uh, a man named Harold Sharp. And uh, he had two books out and I bought both of them. And that was those two were my guides. They were, they were my teachers at the time too. You know, everything I was going to do, I'd look up first and see where the foot was and see how the hip moved and this and that. And uh, some years ago I finally got a chance. I was out in L.A. at uh, uh, Rising Sun Productions and he happened to be there and Don Warren introduced me to him. And I said, wow, this is unbelievable because all I ever saw was this guy in a book cover, you know, and after all those years I finally get to meet him. So I'd love to ask you a question about that.
0: Um, sure. You know, in many ways, in terms of the guests we've had, and this is something that always fascinates me, you're like generation one, 1.5 of North American martial artists Mm. and the awareness of martial arts in North America is so small at that point. Now, today I can just Google anything. I can Google any move, any person and have a video of them right in front of me. What do you think the value of literally knowing five kata for three years or only uh or for even for a whole system like we talked about or the value of just knowing how that hip works out of one book for like a year is versus being able to have all the info at once
3: um i think it's a double-edged sword as as most things are that's good to it there's some not so good um i think when you don't have access to a lot of uh information uh or technique, then you have to start improvising yourself and figuring it out yourself. You know, how does this work? And Well, that didn't work and I wonder why, you know? Mm-hmm. And and this is where we get into bunkai is in karate, uh, that uh, people think bunkai is cut in stone. I mean, when somebody does this, you do that. Well, no, that's not true. Same way in judo. You don't know what anybody's going to do. When you, when you, Try to move or something. It's it's tactical. It, it's tactile. You have your hands on somebody. You can feel. You can feel the pressure go. You can feel uh, resistance. You can feel yielding and so on. And um, you learn more that way, I think, just by doing than you do. Uh, I don't think you 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 learn certain things from reading that uh, you don't learn from practical application, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, luckily, now we have access to a lot of stuff. But then again, it's a, a double edged sword because uh, you start too many things now, you start getting confused. As, <laughs> yeah. Was this right? Was that right? Yeah. No, Goju to you, we only have 12 kata. And the reason for that is simple to, to me anyway that uh, it's very deep, it's not broad. Mm. A deep study, not broad. So, kata changes, your perception of that kata changes as you get older. Your body changes, your ability to understand changes, your ability to uh, uh, analyze it changes. And so you only need twelve if you're thinking about depth. So now, Gixi.h now, when I learned it as a white belt, has a, a lot, much, much more different understanding than originally, much more.
0: And then um, were you just training judo by the time you went to New York? And how long had you been training when you decided to make that move? And, oh, and what's the move just for yeah. martial arts?
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, I had only been training about six months or so. And uh, got the surprise that I told you I went to the dojo and everybody was standing outside. And I said, what's going on? You know? <laughs> Well, we're we'll waiting for Sensei to go. And we waited and we waited and we waited, and we waited. and he never showed up. To this day, never saw him again. <laughs> the people at the YMCA have no idea where he went. And just put a lock on the door, and that was it. <clears throat> and I was so hooked on it, so to speak. I had it. I told my wife, I said, I gotta, I gotta find some place to train. And so uh, I took a trip to Boston, looked around a little bit, didn't see looked in the Yellow Pages and I said, well, let me look in New York too. So I then I took a trip to New York at the weekend, looked at the Yellow Pages and I found, I went down the line and I found a dojo on 34th Street and 8th Avenue called the Judo Twins. And they were identical twins. And I mean identical, mm-hmm. uh, big guys. They were like uh, maybe 250, 255, big necks you know, and they lifted weights. And they had both trained at Kodokan in Japan while they were in the Air Force. And uh, came back and opened up a little dojo. And uh, so I went and I talked to them and uh, told them what the situation was. And I said, you know, I don't, uh, I have a family back home, but I don't, I won't be able to pay, but is there any way that I can, you know, uh, make up for not paying? And he said, well, you know, and at the time there were two other guys living in the dojo at the same time, two guys from Holland. So he said, well, I got two guys sleeping over there in the corner. If you want to sleep here, you can and, you know, clean up the place, help, uh, help around the dojo and open it up, close it with these guys. And I said, okay. So I went back and told my wife, I said, well, I have good news and I have bad news. (laughs) (laughs) The good news is I found a dojo. And she said, oh, great. And I said, well, the bad news is you're going to have to go back and live with your mother for a while. (laughs) And believe it or not, she said, no problem. I'll do it. And uh, uh, amazing lady, obviously, you know, I think had had it been somebody else, they would have said, well, you know, have a nice life and stay in touch where you get a chance. Right. But, uh, I, she went back to Pennsylvania to live with her mother. I moved into the dojo and then uh, I started going, you know, on the weekends i go home, i go down to Pennsylvania to where she was living and I'd bring the money down that I earned during the week and uh, spend some time there and then go back uh, on uh, Sunday night or early Monday morning and uh, go back to the dojo. And I did that for almost a year until I finally got a steady job. I was doing odd jobs then, anything that I could do to make a buck. And then I got a regular job and uh, was able to bring her up. And uh, we found an apartment in Brooklyn, uh, in New York. And uh, and uh, we were back to sort of semi-normal life. <laughs> I still had the dojo. so.
0: That's amazing, you know. And the one the one the one thing I know that Sensei Rice is on the call, you're gonna love this. Like I've sometimes said to people, if you can't drive across your own city to get to your martial arts class, mm. like what's going on with you? Do you even do this art? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and here you are, literally six months in, moving to a different city, your wife agrees with you, supporting it, so you could sleep in a dojo and do this thing that you've fallen in love with. I love this so much. And then what led you to uh, clock other martial arts at that point? Because you're obviously so dedicated to the judo. What? What? I'm sorry, say it again? Yeah, what made you, while you're doing this judo and so dedicated, decide that you wanted to see what other arts were out there?
3: Well, it was just a question of, uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, while I was living there, uh, a guy from um, who was in the service in Europe, in Germany, had trained with somebody in Germany, in Shitoryu, but the old the old style Ryu. And um, when he came back, he was looking for a place to work out and he went to talk to the judo twins. So they told him, well, you know, see so if you can get a little class going here, we got another floor, another level. So he started teaching there and he only had a few, maybe three or four people training with him. and. Uh, so I would do judo from six to eight. And then he was teaching from eight to nine in the evening, one hour. So I'd go down and watch him. And uh, then finally I, I watched him doing kata and I just fell in love with that right away. You know, the mystical movements. And and so uh, I asked him one night if I could get into the class. And he said, okay. And So I was doing judo from... Uh, Uh, six to eight, and then karate from eight to nine, but then I stayed another hour with him afterward. Because he just, he saw that I was so eager, Mm -hmm. you know, he got caught up in it and he wanted to teach me, so uh, I'd spend extra time with him. And I did this for the whole year that I lived there. Mm
0: -hmm. And um, Sensei Suino, did you know the judo twins, did did you guys have any overlap in the judo world because you would have started around the same time as or a few years later but or the same era
1: well i started in Ann Arbor, michigan in 1968 so there's a a little bit that separates us but um i don't know the judo twins um uh, but uh hanshi as you said the um you know even in 68 judo was kind of the preeminent martial art in the midwest and it wasn't <laughs> until later that things like karate and aikido started coming yeah
3: well, the uh, um, at the time there were um, some prominent judo uh, teachers from Japan came in. There was a guy in New York called Jerome Mackey, and Jerome Mackey did the unthinkable. He started making money from judo, and everybody went crazy. You know, this guy's a heretic. He shouldn't be doing this. And they find out in Japan, they're going to send somebody to kill him, and you know, and all of this. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he just was ahead of his time, obviously, and he, he called it Judo Incorporated. So what did he do? He'd bring somebody, some young guy in J- from Japan who wanted to come to the States and uh, he'd have him teach classes for him and he'd pay him, you know, 50 bucks a week and a place to sleep or whatever. And uh, so he was the one that was really promoting Judo the most at, the, at that particular time. and. Um, and, of course, judo uh, competition was really flourishing at the time, too. And a lot of people were coming in from different areas to train in New York because of these Japanese teachers that were coming in. And uh, the, uh, one one person down in, uh, you might, Sensei uh, Swain, you might know Ishikawa uh, Sensei um, was down in Washington, D.C. He was at the age of 32, 33, 34, he was all Japan champion. And that's ancient for to compete in Japan in those championships. He was an old man by that time. And uh, I, as a brown belt, I, I went down to TC and I asked if I could come on the mat. And so I went to the lady that was running the, the club there and I paid him that fee, I think five bucks or something. And I got on the mat, and I got beat up for my $5. <laughs> I saw parts of that mat that I had never seen before. <laughs> and, uh, but a great experience, you know? And uh, it, all it did was make me want to do it more. And uh, in uh, Judo in New York City, was competition was really rough at the time because it was new, and we weren't that sophisticated and uh, a lot of power, a lot of power judo, and uh, competition was tough. And uh, we had, we called the Yudanshikai, which was the Black Belt Association. And we were in uh, Shufu Yudanshikai on the East Coast. And so we would get competitors come up from all along the East Coast to New York where the tournaments were being held. So it was tough competition. And uh, at that time, There were no karate competitions. Um, The first karate competition was held in New York I think in 62 and Masayama came over and that was huge. We had it in a small area of Madison Square Garden and uh, it was by invitation only. Each dojo at the time now there had been some other people teaching karate and uh, not many maybe maybe four dojo in in the New York metropolitan area. Sensei Urban, Sensei Nagel from New Jersey, Ishinu, uh, a guy named Min Pai, who taught some kind of uh, uh, Oriental art that he learned family style or something. And uh, Henry Cho, who was uh, Taekwondo. No, not Taekwondo at the time, just Korean karate. Mm -hmm. all of a sudden uh, somebody had a tournament, a uh, uh, small tournament, and then the next thing I know they're inviting Masayama over and they having this big thing, Sensei Urban organized this big event in uh, Madison Square Garden. And uh, I didn't compete, I didn't make, it, you had to be selected in your dojo, and I was in Chinatown Dojo at the time, and uh, we competed in the dojo to see who was gonna represent us. But at the time, we didn't have the colored belts. You were a white belt or a black belt. And uh, then Sensei Urban gave out a brown belt and a green belt to two other guys so they could compete in this tournament because they were white belt uh, division, green belt, brown belt, black belt division. The winner of that, by the way, was Gary Alexander, and uh, Gary won that that event. And uh, that sort of like, I think, spurred other people to get interested in having tournaments.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And then tournaments started to come more and more, very small. And of course, initially, it was only Kumite uh, no Kata competition. And then some bright promoter thought, you know, I think I can make an extra few few bucks off these guys if I have another division. Because you'd see guys over in the corner just doing kata to warm up, you know, through kata to, to get loosened up. So then somebody decided to have a kata division. And uh, of course, they were very small at the time. And things, as usual, just blossomed through there. And so
0: as I understand it, your first you would have been with your first sensei, uh, DiBiase, then is that, am I saying that right? And then you would have known who Sensei Urban is, but you eventually yeah. moved over with him? Is that how that worked?
3: Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you a funny part about that. Remember I told you about how I got the judo teacher never showed up? Yeah. I start training with Sensei DeVeis. One night he comes in and he goes, I'm not going to be teaching here anymore. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean, Sensei? He says, well, I had, a, I had a big fight with the judo twins and they're kicking me out. They don't want me here anymore. I said, now what am I going to do? I lost the judo teacher, <laughs> now I lost the karate teacher. Now I'll beginning to in the water if it's me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so he said, no, but uh, my friend, Sensei Peter Urban has a dojo in Chinatown. And I'm going to ask him if we, if you can come and train there." And at the time, uh, believe this or not, at the time, Sensei Urban had a uh, two floors, on uh, Canal Street, right by the foot of the bridge, he had two floors, and he had a three-month waiting list. And those we were packed in there. I mean, we were. There wasn't a lot of room to train, in both of these floors, right? And then he he put your name on a list, and if somebody quit or he kicked somebody out, you'd be the next one he called. He took me because he was friends with Sensei Urban, and. Uh, sensei debase. the base so um i was showed on at the time uh and sensei urban said well i'll let him keep his belt but he's got to line up in the back with the white belts and there weren't not a lot of colored belts in it believe me like i said it was black belt or brown belt until they started having those tournaments so i want i got in the back with the white belts And he said, uh, whenever he feels like he's earned the spot up front, then he can line up up front. And so I stayed in the back for a while, a couple weeks. And then finally I said, you know, if I'm going to be here sooner or later, I got to get up got to walk up to the front. And since the base told me, he said, I'm going to tell you something. When he tells you, when you make that move to walk up front, he said, you better be ready to walk up front. Mm. As he said, if not, they're going to eat you alive. So one night I just sucked it up and I walked up, pushed my way in between two guys. And as soon as we did that, we bowed in. So as they said, everybody sit down, please. So in, we all went to one side of the dojo or the other. And he picked out 10 people. And those 10 people got up. And then uh, he called me. And I had to fight each one of them. And as the base told me, he said, you got to make your mark on the first guy. You got to let them know you're out there. And I did. I fought a guy named Harry Rosenstein. And Harry must have been about two feet taller than me. <laughs> and at the time, I was working on a combination of a front kick to a round kick combination. And uh, I'm thinking, I don't know if it's going to I don't know if I'd get my leg up that high or this guy right? but anyway, we went at it, and of course, this was no pads. There was in in Chinatown dojo since he wouldn't let you wear a mouthpiece or a cup. He said because you don't walk around all day with a mouthpiece and a cup, you got to learn how to protect yourself. Mm. So, um, and there's some there's some sense that it makes sense to me. So, uh, and there was no pads, so. Again, we were not sophisticated technique really. So I got through 10 of them and uh, got my loves and uh, I made my spot. That was my spot after that. And uh, Chinatown Dojo had a good reputation for putting us on good fighters. So uh, you either got good or you got, you went home. <laughs> I mean,
0: I can see this on Sensei
3: Dauphin's face.
0: I mean, I got goosebumps. Like, for me, the thought of Chinatown in the 60s, and it's like uh, there's, yeah. there's too much flavor in this for me to even handle. Um, no. but, but, but can you be a little specific about the fighting style? Um, we've talked to some of the fighters who came on in the 70s and Sensei Bill Wallace, but what, what, what was a point back then? Or, or were there points? Was it rounds for five minutes? What did it look like? Oh, I was just always – initially,
3: even in, in judo, Ipon, Ipon or wasari. Four point, half point. Mm-hmm. And um, I think uh, it, it changed over the years. It went from uh, Ipon Shobu to sanban Shobu, three points. And then it went to eight points. And then it went to, you know, now it's, I can't even keep up with it anymore. I think what they were doing, they were trying to make it more spectator uh, friendly because uh, even In the early days, even Ippon and Mozari, even seasoned competitors sometimes had a problem figuring out which was which. Mm -hmm. You know, Because the criteria was the feet had to be flat on the floor. You couldn't be leaning. You had to withdraw the the striking hand. And basically, it was front kick and reverse punch. There was no round kicks. Came much later. Mm -hmm. A back kick. uh, I don't know when I ever saw that, but that sneaked in somewhere. I mean, a sidekick wasn't called until Joe Lewis started knocking people out with it. And he said, well, I guess we better start calling it, so. <laughs> you know? So it was very basic, very basic. And, and, then- uh, yep. and that was the Japanese influence.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, le- legit question, I'm not, I'm not making light here. Did you ever just want to grab them and go, I fucking know judo, I'm going to do this? Or did you? did you keep the martial arts separate in your mind
3: and in your practice? No, no. Uh, you know, uh, you can always use a sweep in judo. Mm-hmm. I mean, in uh, karate, you know, a sweep. But uh, later on, they allowed a throw, but it had to be done a certain way. And, um, but um, I think the idea of of uh, how to use your body in judo, how to, how to, how to, how uh, to, set yourself up on an angle, et cetera, they, they translate it to karate also. You know, in judo, there's a uh, hap, uh, hapunoko sushi, the eight points of balance. And they work also in karate. I teach that a lot when I teach seminars, how to enter. And when you, when you enter in karate to attack, you can do it on different angles, obviously. And the closer you cut the angle, it changes what your, what your weapon is. The further away you are, the longer the weapon. The closer you are, the shorter the weapon. So the closer in you are, uh, elbows, knees, instead of long punch, front kick, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing I learned about judo and I learned the hard way was that um, you don't throw your opponent. You fit to your opponent and you throw yourself and him at the same time. So there's uh, Kazushi break balance, tsukuri means fit, Kaki means execute. So tsukuri, I fit my body to my opponent or whatever part of my body I'm using and then actually throwing myself at him at the same time. And it's called makikomi means to wrap or wrap around your opponent and that way it, it lessens the chance of him escaping in midair. Also,
0: you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. I've done so little, but I was having trouble with it. New Sensei he said to me, Sean, your balance is almost too good. You're keeping your own balance while trying to throw <laughs> the guy. And uh, Sensei Suino, you, you want to chime in on that at all or, or, or just nod along? What do you think? Yeah,
1: no, I, lo- I, I love that. Um, um, Hanji Merriman, uh, you know, I studied judo in the States here um, from 68 to 88. And then I went over to, to, to Tokyo. And I remember, you know, my first couple of weeks, in the dojos in Tokyo, um, uh, one of the big things that everybody used to tell me was, "Hey, you do library judo, uh, <laughs> right? Your judo is from a textbook." Yeah. And so I felt like I was good and technical, but I wasn't winning a lot of matches over there. Um, but uh, Harai Goshi uh, leg sweep was always my, you know, uh, my favorite throw. Um, and I didn't start getting it against the Japanese guys until I threw myself right. Yeah. I would throw that into a somersault, and then it was became a reliable go-to technique for me. So it's great that you say that. <laughs> Fits right in with my experience.
3: Yeah, the little light goes on, right? <laughs> right,
1: right. Yeah. Uh, since Hachi uh, Legacy. Uh, sorry, go
0: ahead. No, even,
3: even uh, when I was teaching full time, uh, I always taught uh, judo to my black belts, always. Because uh, in Goju-ryu, uh, you know, when karate went from Okinawa to Japan, a lot was lost. A lot was lost. Um, when people ask me to the difference between Japanese karate and Okinawan karate, it's very simple. Japanese karate is how, how do you do this? How do you do karate? Okinawan karate is why do you do this? Big difference. So Japan popularized karate through competition because what was brought to Japan from Okinawa, when the Japanese took over and started making it Japanese karate, they made it how you do it. In Japan, there's um, everything has a kata. Everything is a kata. Uh, Ikebana, how do you arrange flowers, right? Um, how do you do shodo, the brushwork? There's a way you do it, there's a, a method to it that you follow. And um, Judah, uh, Okinawan karate, no. I wanna know why am I doing this? What, what am I supposed to, what's the end result gonna be? So, and uh, don't get me wrong, I, I don't wanna offend anybody. I'm not, I'm not knocking one down to put the other one up, just showing a difference. And if, uh, if the Okinawans had their way, we probably wouldn't be doing karate now. The Japanese popularized that. The Okinawa sort of stayed in little groups by themselves, mm-hmm. even here in the States. They had, they had students, but they didn't go out and uh, really promote it that well. And uh, the things that are inherent to Okinawan karate, you never saw in Japanese karate, especially in Goju-Ryu. Uh, I started, obviously, I told you before, I started in Goju uh, Kaya and Yamaguchi Sensei, And it was all kumite. Everything was fighting. You did kata, but you did this kata for this grade, and when you moved on to shodan to nidan, you did the next kata and then so on. And Okinawan karate is just the opposite. Kata is more important. So uh, the, uh, the idea that so much was lost uh i never heard of bokai never now bungai has become very popular mm-hmm. but never heard of it uh never never was taught why we did this you just did it this is the way you do it and uh but i always knew uh, my mind is always inquisitive and i always knew there was i'm missing something so Every chance I get I try to get as much information as I could and gradually start hearing about Okinawa. I'd never heard about Okinawa before, Japan. And uh, so now I start trying to find out more about Okinawa. And I think, okay, one day that's where I want to go, to where it all started. Mm. Up until that point I thought karate started in Japan, in mainland Japan. I didn't know about uh, Miyagi-Choji Sensei, I know about Yamaguchi, said, not the founder. So I was under the impression that Yamaguchi Gogen Sensei was the founder of Goju up until that point. And uh, finally uh, worked, worked my way to Okinawa eventually and that was my goal when I found out about Okinawa and that's where it started. I wanted to get back to the origins. So when you
0: got there, and I know that was a little, you'd been training for a long time, did that then feather back and make you go, I literally need to start over and relearn this? Or was it an easy overlay when you started to look at the why more than the how?
3: I had been making adjustments along the way, more toward Oginawa. Uh As much as I could learn kata uh, from whoever I could learn it from, that um, and there weren't that many people that that uh, I could rely on to get legitimate stuff. But whatever I could get, and I gradually, I kept doing more and more toward the way the Okinawans do got, And more fluid, more uh, connected, so to speak. I learned about uh, kakiye, which I never heard of before, uh, about sensitivity training, about uh, or the, Supplementary training, nigirigami, gari, uh, et cetera, never heard of those. Then I go to Okinawa I see all this. And I start, of course I, I went, when I went I was much older. I went in uh, the early 90s, I finally got to Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And I was much older at the time. And uh, hojo wouldn't benefit me that much physically. But I learned it so I could teach my students when I went back. Because Hojo uh, Undo is an in- integral part of Goju Ryu training. And in order to really understand kata and uh, the essence of kata, Okinawa Goju you you should use Hojo uh, Undo training and Kaki. So,
0: so that's going to lead us to a question. I'm going to uh, throw it to Sensei Dofan in a sec, but that's actually a perfect setup for. Can you just talk about why that's important and also Sensei Conray Copeland wrote in and he says Sensei What is your fave Goju Kata? Great to see you uh-huh.
3: He's one of my favorite people one of my He's, favorite. All, of our,
2: he's yeah. all of our favorite person yeah, Everybody on this call of Sensei Copeland
3: Yeah, great uh, great role model, a gentleman, a strong, strong karate man, a gentleman, always a gentleman He's the ideal balance. Um, funny thing about kata is uh, it changes. My my kata and such a legacy was reminding me that I he saw me do senyuuichi one time, and uh, that was my kata. I milked uh, I milked that to death. <laughs> it got to it got to the point I think where people were saying, "Does this guy know any other kata?" Hey, it was working for me, you know, and. Um, Sanchu, I loved it. The reason I loved it was that if you think about it, if you know the kata, it is the essence of Okinawan Goju-Ryu. Why? It's all hands, there's no kicks. It's all hand technique. And what happened when Karate we went from Okinawa to Japan, they lost the idea about hand technique. Everything became kicking because it's mouth visual. Kicking is much more spectacular it's easier to get a point with a kick than it is a party. So kicking became very popular. But it's karate, it's empty hand, not empty foot. So they lost uh, the thing about kicking, uh, became popular. But uh, so senyuchin is all hand technique. And Zenze Sueno can vouch uh, for this, the first kata in Judo, uh, Naginokata, is a hand technique, right? No legs, nothing. Yep, yep, yep. It was, Mm yep. The very first technique, meaning that in actuality, uh, judo is also a hand art. The legs assist, but the hands do the throwing. And karate, the hands actually, um, in Okinawan karate, you kick from the waist down because what you want to do is destabilize your opponent's base. So if you kick the legs and you kick, uh, you make the base weak, then the upper part of the body loses strength. It has nothing to, to work off. So all the kicks are low to destabilize the base. Once the base is destabilized, then the hand kicks finish. It. So it's ancient, it's all hand. But as you get older, <laughs> the body takes over and it says, you know, we're not going to do those low stances anymore, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you try, you know, and then you keep getting a little higher, a little higher, a little higher. And uh, so, the Yogi says they taught kata according to a person's body size, his start body structure. And he taught only kata that fit that body structure. So if I, like say, uh, he would teach Sensei Gary uh, Kodurupa, and he taught me senguchi, if I wanted to learn Kura I learned from Sensei Gary. He would show me the movements. Or I would show him the movements to the same way. Once I got the movements down, then Sensei would come and correct me. But anything that Sensei could teach me, Sensei Gary could teach me, it's just movement. It's just put your foot here, turn here, block here, right? Now, that, once you get that down, that Sensei comes in and fine tunes it. So he would teach according to body structure. And uh, he didn't, uh, supposedly didn't teach all the kata to everybody because of that reason. My teacher Miyazato Ichi Sensei learned all the kata because he assisted, um, Miyagi Sensei was the teacher uh, at the police academy in Naha. He was Miyagi Sensei's assistant. So he had to learn everything. He had to learn to help. Mm-hmm. And that's why he learned all the kata. But and eventually, uh, my favorite kata became the uh, 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 I mean, um, Chisochi. It's all upright. And I understand that, I know from Miyazato Sensei. That was his favorite kata as he got older. And Miyagi-sensei apparently, I asked Miyazato-sensei, and he said the same thing, Miyagi-sensei's kata in his later years was uh, Mm Chizouchi. So I think your body kind of dictates what kata you're going to feel comfortable with.
0: (laughs) Um, Sensei Do-Fat.
2: Yeah, I I guess my question, well, first a statement. It's uh, interesting that you say it was harder to find resources, uh, Archie Merriman, in the past because all the people on this call are just getting all of this so easily. It's just flowing to them. We're going to slam it up on the internet and everybody's going to benefit for decades for what you're giving us tonight. Uh, And it's gold. Like the things that you're sharing with us, are things that young people will never they're not going to hear it um so thanks so much for that i guess i'm always fascinated with people like yourself hanchi legacy and who came before you like so when i'm with sensei legacy i'm often asking him questions about benny allen and richard kim and harold warden and uh for yourself i guess a question that i have is um you know a person like sensei peter urban he's there's a lot of mystique around him as a pioneer of martial arts in North America. And quite frankly, in the world, I am just curious to know what are some of the things that you, if you were going to share some things with this audience that people don't know about Peter urban, that you feel it's important that people should know about him, these things, what would you want to share with everybody?
3: That's an interesting question because, um, uh, I've heard all the stories and, um, a lot of the stories I hear are from people who don't know him, never never trained with him. Uh, they like to uh, perpetuate the, the myth, so to speak, you know. Uh, Sensei Urban was a uh, uh, godan, fifth dan, from Yamaguchi Gogen Sensei in Japan, trained in Japan. He brought uh, he brought Goju karate to the United States. And he made the Yamaguchis famous. And we knew of them because of Sensei Urban. When he came back, he was, he had been in, I think he was in the Navy in Japan. That's how he got started. And he was young strong. He was like a little bull, so to speak. He had knuckles on him that looked like ping pong balls from all the makiwara trim. and uh, very lean, very sharp, very strong. And um, I saw him change over the years. He had a very, very uh, bad falling out with the Yamaguchis, and uh, he didn't get along with the brothers, uh, especially the youngest youngest one. He didn't get along too well with him. And uh, I don't know if it was him that he expected too much and wasn't getting it from them, or they were just treating him like a gaijin, a foreigner. But uh, I saw him change over the years. and then. Um, He went to Japan in 1966 to train at the Hanbu Dojo and uh, I guess he got into a very bad argument with uh, uh, Yamaguchi Gogen Sensei and uh, decided he was going to leave the Goju Kai. Uh, Things started to change rapidly before he went to Japan, his attitude, and so I think he was thinking about leaving even before he went to Japan. And this was in 66, 1966. And uh, uh, he uh, he had problems physically. He had a lot of back problems, pain, pain in his back. And um, he started uh, taking uh, medication for that. And uh, I don't know if that altered his, his moods so, or Or whatever, but I could see gradual changes in him from when he when I first started training with him. And um, I think the one word you could say that uh, would fit him was he eccentric. Right from from the beginning, I mean, he was one of a kind, an original. He had uh, uh, two levels in Chinatown, and he was at the third and fourth levels. And the staircase going up to the the third and fourth floor—it looked like there was no end to it. You know, it looked like there was clouds up there. And uh, you go up to the fourth floor, and that's where his office was. And um, he—he had a makiwara nailed to the post outside the door. So in order for us to go in, we had to beat on that makiwara and beat on it and beat on it, and then. We would hear, Who's knocking on my door? (laughs) Chuck Merriman said, Say, then I'd have to pan, pan. (laughs) Then I'd hear, Enter, Brother Merriman. (laughs) Now I could go in. (laughs) Now I could go in. And I go in, and he was, I don't know, some of you might remember a guy named Rube Goldberg. He used to make all these strange contraptions, Mm -hmm. I mean, Uh, wires and traps and everything all over the place. Sensei was kind of like that. You know, there was a fuse fuse box. At that time there was fuse boxes. He used to, instead of fuses, he'd use pennies. He'd stick pennies in there, you know. And then he had wires running all over the place. And he had a, on the third floor, he had a big gong. One of those Chinese gongs. And it was, uh, he hung it Level, not this way, but he hung it this way, on the ceiling on the third floor, and he used to make us in line and run and do flying front kicks and try to kick that gong. And he said, any anybody that can kick the gong, will have many male children, many males, uh, many sons. <laughs> so. I kicked it once, so I had three sons, so it must have worked better. <laughs> but he would do things like this. Uh, he would hide things in the dojo, and you'd be fighting. And if you saw something like a, a rubber hatchet or a set of keys, or you could grab him and use him while, you, while you're sparring, right? And then he had an old beat up belt, and he hung that up, and he said, We're gonna get points in Kubite. You guys are going to fight, we're going to keep score. And whoever gets the most points at the end of the month will get that belt. And we literally beat the crap out of each other for, for that whole month trying to get that belt. So he did things like this. And I mean the karate he taught was way ahead of his time. I still use a lot of things that he taught me. Um, he said things that made a lot of sense later on but didn't make sense at the time because it was, he said one time he said about kata. Although we didn't do bunkai, so to speak, he said that kata to him was like like the alphabet. He said, you have to find out how to use it. You know, in the alphabet there's drama, prose, poetry, Uh, it goes on and on, Uh, ways to use these same 26 letters. And it's still only 26 letters. And he said, Shakespeare had the same 26 letters that I use. Why was he Shakespeare and I'm not? What that told me was I'm the one that has to figure that out. Mm. Okay, you got the same kata I got. How do I use it? How do you use it? We might use it different ways. Your body might be different. Your concept of how to use those movements that you learn. Would change. Your opponent changes tall, short, heavy, slow, fast. You have to adapt to that. And that's where the bunkai comes in constant adaptation. Bunkai means, whenever I used to do seminars, I'd always say, How many people know what bunkai Munkai means? Of course, all the hands would go up and they'd say, uh, What does bunkai mean? It means to uh, application. Mm, well, no. It means to analyze. You can analyze something without applying it, and you can apply something without analyzing it. So you analyze first, and then from the analyzation, how do I apply what I just analyzed? That changes according to who, you, who your opponent is. Everybody's going to react to you differently. So mukai actually means adaptation. Analyze, then adapt. Analyze, then adapt. That's no different than boxing. That's what boxers do. They're in the moment. So, bunkai in karate takes you into the moment of what's happening right then. Uh, What do I do with it? So, bunkai is fluid. Of course, we have, we use kion bunkai, which is how you start. You analyze it this way so you have a base for learning. Mm -hmm. Second one is oyomunka. Oyo Oyo means uh, now different opinions. Um, How do do I use this now? Well, maybe maybe I can do this instead. Maybe this will work better for me. Not changing the movement, but how I use that movement on a certain person. And when I was training in Okinawa, uh, on Sundays we'd have uh, uh, training sessions where uh, sensei would invite some of the older, higher-ranking um, students in, and some of the younger ones. And we call it kinkyukai means to uh, research. So, there would be kenkyukai, would be research on that day. So, one of the younger students would do kata, and then do uh, kiyomukai, or oyomukai. And then we say, well, different ideas, well, what do you think? And somebody will say, well, you know, sensei, I think if I move a little bit sharper on this angle and approach from this way using the same movement, of we go, okay, let's try that. Everybody try that. So now we try it. We're trying what works, what doesn't work. If it doesn't work, how do I adjust it? Changing it is easy. Anybody can change. It. But learning how to use those tools that you have is difficult. Mm. And learning how to make those movements adapt to a situation that's happening right then, at that, at that time, that's even more difficult. So what it becomes down, what it comes down to, is sensitivity. That's why in Goju Ryu, when you see good Goju Ryu kata, it's all connected from the beginning to the end. You don't see separate parts to it. You see a continuation. One movement leads into the next movement. That movement leads into the next, et cetera. And in Wukai, um, every movement is not meant to be a, a, a final movement. It's sometimes it's meant to get a reaction out of the opponent. I do this to get a reaction to move into the next movement, etc., etc. So this is where the sensitivity comes in. That's why in Wukai, when we train, we train one person, two people together, and you connect. Once you connect, you try to stick and stay connected. You don't want to separate. If you separate the connection, then you have to start again. Mm-hmm. As long as I can touch you and I can feel you, I have a better chance of reading where you're going or what you're doing. Once I separate, that connection is gone. And I, again, I apply that to judo also. You know, if, uh, uh, you, you gotta feel, you have to, where the resistance is pushing, pulling, lifting, pushing down, pushing, uh, redirecting, pushing on the shoulder, what reaction do I get, pulling here, etc. So with uh, kata, same thing when we do bunkai, stick, make sure you hold the connection, and then one, technique you house it to the next until it's done. And it's like I- p- there's no such thing with us as offence or defense. Once the connection is made, it's all offense. Mm-hmm. Everything is offense after that. But using which I'm sure all of us know, all of you know this, is that any block could be a strike, any strike could be a block, et cetera. You know? So that's where you see it in, in uh, uh okay now and got the book I you'll see that connection of one becoming the other. And the best uh, uh what's better offense or defense? Neither one. It's when they're both the same. When offense and defence are the same, they connect. That's the best. Now you work now you've got the essence of it.
2: Hmm. I, I love that stuff, Hanshi, like I I write these notes as I we're doing these interviews and I've got like pages right now of things that I've written down that you've said already. Um, if you don't mind, one thing I wanna do is when I, I mentioned um, a couple of names, I saw you smile and that could have just been me reading into something. But uh, if I mentioned a couple of names, I wondered if you would indulge us, if you knew them or any thoughts that you had on some of Sensei Legacy's teachers, one of them being Benny Allen and another one being Bob Dalglish. Did you ever cross paths with those people or do you have any thoughts on them?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, They were my time, they were during my time and um, I competed a lot in Canada and uh, I knew a lot of the karate people up there. And uh, of course I knew Bob Dalglish used to come to my house and spend weeks with me, and, train, and training. And I learned a lot from him. Uh, Benny Allen, I knew, didn't know him that well because I didn't live in Canada, but I knew him, and I met him. And uh, I, I knew what influence he had at the very beginning of all of this uh, karate, and what influence he had in Canada, and how many great people came from that lineage. and. Uh, I never got to train with him, uh, but uh, Bob, I did. Bob was um, a gypsy. <laughs> Bob would spend a week with me in training, and he'd go out to California, spend a week out there. He was always going someplace and picking up, picking up this, picking up that. And he was, uh, he was probably my first um, connection. I want to say to Okinawa, he'd already went down that path, That started researching that about Okinawa. And um, I, I, we'd get together and we'd train and we'd uh, learn a lot from him about in his travels of picking up some here, some there, et cetera, but great guy. His wife actually, Ruth, her she lived about a half hour away from me, originally before she married Bob and moved up to Canada. And then after Bob passed away, she moved back. And uh, I contacted Ruth and told her, you know, my dojo is your dojo. You you have a key, you come anytime you want to trade. But I think she just uh, lost interest after Bob passed away because they never heard from her again.
2: Thanks so much for that, Hunchy. Yeah, I don't know, it's getting uh, long in the show here, like time flies. Time know, flies? One thing, oh. We we haven't heard too much from Hanchi Legacy tonight. I just wonder, uh Hanchi, any thoughts or any questions you have for Hanchi Merriman about anybody or anything you any thoughts from what you're hearing?
3: No, I I, I really don't. I just want to listen more. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> like when somebody's giving you valuable information, you listen. <laughs>
0: Thanks, Hanchi.
3: I pass on, uh, I never, I never say things are cut in stone. I just try to pass on my experiences and uh, how I got through them or what I gained from them. And, uh, you know, uh, I always believe that karate is a a long journey. Each one has to follow their own path and each one has to do their own research for them. And uh, I think this is how, Karate becomes very personal and very special because it is you, it, it's an extension of you. How you research, what, how you use what you, what you learn. And um, I'm always uh, grateful to whatever I learned from a lot of different people. And uh, I try to pass that on and I try to benefit anybody I can because it was always there for me. People have always been good to me, it always been very open. When I went to Okinawa, and uh, Miyazato-sensei was uh, <laughs> he, uh, very gruff, very gruff. You know, well, his English, of course, was uh, uh, limited, but everything was short, <laughs> <laughs> like this. And first time I met him, I thought, yeah, what did I get into here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but his, what uh, Miyazato-sensei was very, very astute. Because what he, wanted to, what he wanted to see is, why are you here? Not what you tell him. Why are you here? What's your intentions? Why did you come here? And then he watches you. And little things, odds and ends of just maybe a social thing or whatever. And he's watching how you react here, how you talk here, how you act here, how you, how, 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 what's your attitude to toward training, et cetera, et cetera. So I went the first time for three weeks, and I was in the dojo at eight in the morning, two in the afternoon, six at night. And at that time there was no classes; we didn't have classes. I just open, always open training. And uh, going at eight o'clock in the morning, um, nobody was there, obviously. And Miyazato uh, Sensei he would—he lived in the third floor. He would come down, go outside and putter around, watering his little garden or. Uh, doing whatever, and so he would leave the doors open. So that's when I would come. And sure enough, if I came, put my gi on, got on the floor, and I'd warm up a little bit, do some hojo or whatever, start doing kata, he'd come give me something to do. So every day that I I had the chance to get little pieces here and there, just from him, nobody else was in the dojo. And. Uh, Those times were were special because it was, uh, what he'd do is he'd give you something to work on and then leave you alone. Come back maybe half hour, 45 minutes later and look at you. And if you weren't practicing what he showed you, he wouldn't bother with you anymore. he just walk (laughs) walk away. So he he would ask you three questions. How old are you? How long have you been training? What rank are you? Do you have rank? then he would watch you on the floor and he wouldn't determine from what you were doing and how you conducted yourself if those three things that you told him fit what you told him. Your age, your experience, your rank. If you said you were Godon, he wouldn't tell you no you're not because if that's in somebody's mind you're not going to change that. That's, they think they are, they think they are. Uh, what he would do, he'd watch you and then he would evaluate you on your performance and your attitude and your the way you conducted yourself. And then he would teach you at whatever level he thought you were. So two choices. If you if you were getting taught on the level you thought you were, smart enough to learn or <laughs> or leave the dojo and either way solve the problem. <laughs> um.
0: Sensei, we do something called our, our 10 questions that we ask all our guests, but okay. I, have two quick, I have two quick questions before that I'm really interested in. Uh, and again, it goes back to this, this area and time in which you're training. So as you're developing this without much what you'd call like nuance back in the 60s, uh, New York's a pretty tough place at the time. Are you getting into stuff in the streets and going, oh, karate works or doesn't based on that? Or are, is all your fighting happening in the dojo?
3: No, I just did the dojo. We used to have dojo wars. You know, like I said, there was only a couple of dojo in, in the metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Sensei Negro would bring some guys to our dojo and we'd fight. And then we'd, so a month later, we'd take a few guys to his dojo and we'd fight. And, you know, always it always started out friendly, but it used to get a little heated. <laughs> First time somebody got tagged a little too hard, you know, you <laughs> want to kick it up a notch. You know. Yeah, right on. Uh, and then. But, uh, no, I uh, never, never really had any, um, anything that I could say was a real physical altercation. Yeah. I had a couple in the dojo, and I used to train up in the Bronx once in a while. There was a, a dojo up there later, much later on. And uh, i go up there to train a guy named Frank Ruiz ran it. And uh, we had a guy come in one night off the street, and uh, he wanted to fight. So he fought, and he got his ass kicked. But the funny thing was that he left. He left, and he came back about maybe close, almost a year later. And he walked in the dojo, and we thought, this guy is back again, (laughs) (laughs) What he did, he went and he joined the Marine Corps, and he, he Said he learned a lesson from that night. You know, when we say he kicked him, kicked his butt. You know, just not to the way of breaking his legs and stuff, but just really bagging him around. And uh, he went. He went to Marine Corps, became a marine, came back, and uh, said that uh, he thanked. He said, "Say Frank thanked him. He said he taught me a good lesson that night." So there was a good part to that too.
0: Um. And then my other quick question, or maybe not before we get into the 10 questions is, you know, you're talking about the difference between the Okinawan roots, which you ultimately found and the Japanese, which you were first presented with in the sixties. Do you believe that there was more grappling back in the like 1800s in the Okinawan bunkai as part of the karate? Or do you think that's always been a separate thing?
3: No, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I just saw something on, on Facebook about uh, Funakoshi Sensei's book that we showed. That he actually showed throws in it, and this was from way back, way back. But mm-hmm. no, you see, uh, once you once you get into uh, uh, the Okinawan aspect of the kata, then you see the throws in there. You see the grappling. You see arm locks. In sapei, there's an arm lock that goes into a strike and so on. But, you know, ultimately, when you think about it, uh, uh, physical situations never actually happen until two people could touch each other. When you could touch somebody, then the physical thing happens. Otherwise, it's just distance. You're hollering at each other, calling each other's names. (laughs) Each one's hoping the other one's gonna walk away, right? (laughs) Then uh, the minute you could touch something, you see, you see it, it just in uh, like security cameras or something. They'll be arguing, and they get up close, and as soon as somebody touches, it starts in. And where does it wind up? On the ground, almost always. So the Okinawans knew that, and they they took that into consideration when they, when they were developing their uh, uh, the different aspects of tape. And at that time, there was no goju or anything; it was just tape. Mm-hmm. Or T in, in their language. And uh, now that's uh, definitely an aspect. That, and that's why then later on, when I started teaching judo to my black belts, all of that came in. Even though I didn't practice bunkai, that I, as bunkai, I was doing it on my own, just analyzing what could happen in this position, what could happen in that position. Mm-hmm. It evolved by itself. Right on. Thanks for that. Um,
0: you ready for your ten questions? Yeah. All right. So take as little or as much time as you like to respond. What is the most effective move in your martial arts arsenal?
3: Not a physical one. A mental one. And I don't mean that the old, the old thing about you know, uh, you never, never strike first, and the old maxim in karate, uh, it's always defense first. I mean uh, avoiding, avoiding mm-hmm. situations, uh, not getting, letting somebody get close enough to you to, to make a physical contact when you feel it could be con- uh, it's a contentious situation, etc. I worked at the UN for three years in security in the United Nations in New York City. You couldn't carry weapons in there. Uh, we had a little rubber nightstick or something, you know, wasn't worth anything. So I use my brains a lot in that yeah. job. I bet. So I think first of all, uh, mental acuity, best weapon you could have. Who has been the most influential martial artist in your life? Sensitivis, my first teacher. I'm doing karate because of his influence. on what I saw him doing, I fell in love with it right away and he brought me along uh taught me a lot not just karate taught me a lot about life and uh there's a, a term in karate in japanese kiri. kitty means a debt that can't be repaid mm-hmm. so if you give me 50 bucks and i give it back to you a week later we're done but what sense he gives you no. no 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 price tag on that at all he's giving you part of him part of his life so how do I repay that? So I would look for, with Sensitive base, I always look for little ways that I could do things for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing, I always wanted to get him back to Okinawa, to get him to Okinawa, he'd never been. So finally, one trip I took, I took him with me and uh, introduced him to Miyazato Sensei. And uh, I had a meeting with, uh, Miyazato sensei and I asked if he would grade him, if he would grade him to uh eighth done. And Miyazato sensei tested him and graded him. So that was one, one way I paid a little bit back. Um I wanna keep going with the questions, but sensei Dauphin,
0: you wanna let him know?
2: Oh, yeah. Alexa uh, like Merriman uh in Legacy Shore and Rue, Sensei Legacy always asks the different Udentia to give their own personal name to their dojo, so each one of the instructors has like a private name for their dojo, and the name of the dojo here in Kitchener, the private name for this dojo is Giri Dojo. Uh-huh. And I, I chose that name because uh, I want my students to know that they always owe back to martial arts and they always owe back to the people who came That's before order. them.
3: Yep. Thanks, Sensei. You know, the yeah. term uh, shuhari, shuhari is very important also in that aspect of, of giddy, and, um, you know, shuhari is not just uh, martial arts, it's in life, life is the same way, you know, when you're young, you depend on your parents for everything, clothing, food, they teach you how to eat and so, on. and then later on you get older, you go to high school, and you get a little job on the side, you get a few dollars in your pocket, You want to be a little more independent, you know, you get get the (laughs) urge to, uh, now I need a car. And, uh, and then later on you go off, you get married and uh, your parents are still there and you still have that attachment to them. You don't have to be living in the same house. The trick is with shuhari, the trick is, is to, uh, if you teach that in the beginning, usually when somebody, In my experience, uh, in the martial arts, when a student leaves a teacher, and that's the the third part, re-part, right? They know they have to go, but they don't know why they have to go. There's that urge to to get out a little bit on my own, right? So a lot of times, they leave negatively. Mm -hmm. They have to justify why they're leaving, and they do it in a negative way. Uh, you know, that, 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 that. if you teach shuhari to your students, when that time comes, they feel comfortable in leaving because they're not leaving you. They're just going out and now becoming dependent on their own more than they're relying on you. A good example for me is the the yanos The was a phenomenal karate man much better than I was. His cut is unbelievable. He was the only, he was the first American to take a silver medal at the Wuko World Championships in Taiwan. He lost by two-tenths of a point to a Japanese guy. But he's, he's been out on his own for a long time. His son has now grown up, taking over where his father's leaving, go, cetera. So that, to me, is my good example of Shu Hardy. He's still my student. He's always been never had another teacher. And so there's, there's no, um, there's a physical separation in the sense that we're not living in the same house, so to speak, but spiritual uh, is still there, always very strong.
0: Who do you think is the most influential martial artist of all time and
3: why? I know a lot of people want me to say Bruce Lee, but I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> um, that'd be difficult because I think it's again more personal. Um, Bruce Lee had a, of course, he, he made a big impact. You know, he got a lot of people interested in the martial arts, uh, some not for such good reasons either. You know, the, and then Shako became, uh, uh, he made it uh, famous and, they started banning it in police departments. You couldn't carry them. And so there was a bad part to that. But uh, that would be a tough one to say. Uh, I wouldn't even have an answer for that.
0: OK, what excites you most about the next five years of your martial arts?
3: Well, I have had to do a lot of adapting uh, in the past, uh, say, 10 years of my physical uh, uh Body has deteriorated. I have to use a walker or a wheelchair. Um, but uh, what I've done is I figured out other ways to train. Even though even though that, especially with Goju Ryu, I can always do Sanshin attention, no problem. I don't have to be standing for it, I can do it in a chair or, or whatever. I was fortunate enough to, uh, when I got to Okinawa, I met uh, um, Saki Roshi, a Zen master. And he actually trained with Miyagi Sensei also when he was younger, and he had a zendo, a Zen training place in Shuri City. So I, when I go to Okinawa, I always practice Zen with him, and then I take, uh, still, can do Zen myself without physical movement or anything. In fact, mm-hmm. it's even better, I don't have move. But uh, training with him was great because he, uh, he trained with Miyagi Sensei, so after a zen training, zen training was six to seven in the morning and for an hour. And uh, then we'd always get together afterward downstairs and make coffee and have some pastries and stuff like talk about his training in the early years with Miyagi-sensei. So it was really, really great connection. So that aspect is still with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, my karate is obviously more mental than physical right at this point, but it's still there, not going anywhere.
0: Uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? Welcome, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fave film and TV martial artist? TV? Uh, film or TV app? Uh,
3: I don't know. I don't really know. Um, you know, as much as I like Chuck Norris, I've never seen one of his movies. And uh, for some reason, um, I remember in the early years, I saw James Cagney and Plot on the Sun mm-hmm. doing judo, right? <laughs> so I said he knows about that one. That <laughs> was wild. I mean, whoa. You know, he beat up that guy and uh, made a fool out of him on the mat. And then uh, the next one was... Um, um, Spencer Tracy.
0: Mm.
3: He also he had one arm, and uh, I forget what the movie was, but uh, did some karate. So these were the early forerunners before any of the other people came up. But uh, and of course I saw uh, Bruce Lee with in the green heaven, and, yeah. and I think they all had a little bit of influence one way or the other. But I think Chuck Norris is the one that made the biggest. Impact, and uh, because of, first of all, because of his image, he's a great guy. Too. He's never changed over the years. He's mm-hmm. been chucked from day one to day to right now. Very polite guy. Very uh, great karate man. So, no. which, yep. No.
0: Uh, which martial artist, famous or not, do you wish you could have sparred with uh, in your heyday or now?
3: Uh, Miyagi, Miyagi Sensei. I'll tell you a quick story about. It. I was in Korea in 1950. I, I went to Korea in 1950, and Choji uh, Sensei died in '53. Had I known anything at all about karate, I could have actually taken a leave and went to Okinawa and uh, trained with. him. I, I don't know if they would even let me into dojo at the time, but I could have tried, you know. So he was still alive while I I was in Korea. And that, that of course, would be getting back to, that's why I picked Miyazato sensei, because uh, he never changed anything that he was taught. He never added anything that he was taught. He just, he would tell you upright, what I'm teaching, I learned from my teacher. And um, so that's uh, as close as I got to training with
0: Miyagi sensei. If everyone in the world could get the greatest benefit you've gotten from martial arts, whether they train or not, what would it be?
3: Uh, in my case, I think confidence was a big thing. Mm-hmm. I was I was very shy, and I mean really, really painfully shy. Um, and uh, I just gained more confidence in myself because uh, doing karate, especially new don't cut a lot. It's only you. It's your performance. And I think when I originally told you that I was never interested in team sports, and I think that was part of it too, my shyness about being involved with somebody else. So that, the confidence, uh, um, I think is the biggest, the biggest benefit for me anyway. And I think for kids too.
0: Last two questions from the 10 questions. What's your greatest achievement
3: and your greatest regret? Oh, the regrets I've got three, which I will mention. Uh, <laughs> greatest achievement I I think is seeing a student of mine like like Domingo go to the to where he is, where he's made a, a, a name for himself at karate, and uh, the opportunities that he's had is uh, much more gratifying to me than me doing it because it's influenced him in a certain way. And it's made his life a lot better. He has his own dojo and he's raised a family and he's traveled all over the world with me. So to see that is really gratifying. And my son, uh, Chad, uh, followed in my footsteps and that's extremely gratifying. I have three sons and a daughter and he was the only one that was really interested in, in karate. Mm-hmm. So uh, that to me is,
0: is the ultimate. Thank you, Sensei. Um, before we go around the horn, does anybody have any extra questions? Because, okay, so I Sensei, just, yeah. yeah.
2: I don't have a question. I just uh, want to say this has been like an extreme treat, Hanchi Merriman. I hope, uh, I'm going to be really bold and just uh, put you on the spot here and say, I hope we can, we can get you back on here in maybe four or six weeks because I know we're just not hearing everything from you that everybody wants to hear. I know I certainly want to hear a lot more from you. So if you're willing to come back on, I know uh, we'd love to chat with you again. Um, it's just I I a couple of times you've said things that have almost moving me to tears uh, when I've been listening to you talk about it. So
3: well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm I'm willing anytime. I love this. I really appreciate you guys having me. It's been great. I enjoyed this so much. Right so on anytime. Just Thanks. let me know
0: ahead of time. So we're just gonna go around the group, and we're all gonna kind of say our last thoughts, and then the last word will go to you, Hanshi Merriman. A huh? legacy. Well, i just gonna say what
3: I said before. When your mouth is open, you're not learning. Yeah. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm enjoying now. I'm the student here. Mm-hmm. And thank you very much, Archie, for coming to visit us. My pleasure, believe me.
0: Sensei Swino.
1: Archie, uh, your words and uh, history just let me know that, as I've been saying at some of these conversations, a life spent in martial arts is a life well lived. Um, I would love to, when we do have you back, I'd love to revisit the New York years a little bit. Uh, I have a lot of family in New York. Uh, my my late mother, God rest her soul, the last place, the second to the last place she lived was uh, in the Canal Street, Mulberry Street neighborhood, oh, wow. right in Chinatown, yeah, uh, which must have been really close to the yeah. to the dojo there that you talked about
3: yeah.
1: Um, I think, and I it just reminds street over yeah right, street or two over um, in view of the bridge. You know, yeah. get up in the morning, walk downstairs, and walk past all the Chinese restaurants. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I married my wife in uh, August of of uh, 2001. And um, as you gentlemen probably are aware, tomorrow is the 19th anniversary of 9-11.
3: Yeah.
1: Uh, so it's been on my mind a lot lately, that town has. And I'm sure you mm-hmm. have some interesting stories, uh, martial arts or otherwise, related to to the time you spent there. So I, uh, I'd i love to have you back.
3: Oh, yeah. My pleasure, believe me, anytime. time. Um, Sensei anything else? Pardon?
0: Oh, I'm just throwing it over yeah, to well, I, I got a lot. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I got a lot. I got a lot here that I want to say to wrap it up. So a couple of thoughts for people. Um, to think about, Hunchy Merriman looked for uh, a dojo in a thing called a telephone book. And he looked in the yellow pages to find it. And if you're a young person on this call, you should go ask your parents or maybe your grandparents what that is. Um, But but that's something that just leapt out at me. Um, You know, he's learned so much. I I just think it's uh, I don't want to romanticize it too much, but it's so cool that the first dojo he went to in New York City, he was so driven that he's going to sleep in the dojo and he can't pay that he's going to make money, but he's still meeting his responsibilities by sending money back to his family. That's fucking incredible. Like, the generation today learn a lot from just thinking about that for a moment, just going and thinking about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I liked what he said about how he's gotten older, his ability to analyze and change, right? As you get older, you have this ability to analyze and change. And uh, a building thought in my mind is, That's why we need to leave it to ninth and 10th dance to change karate and not let young people change karate. We all have these great ideas, but you just haven't trained. Like, I just haven't trained long enough to have these deep thoughts and analyze these things and know what's best to change. So I really appreciate hearing that. Uh, I loved hearing the story about him lining up with the white belt, so the black belt on, and him (laughs) having to back up and make the decision to step forward into the black belt line. That's incredible.
3: People that, come was in here today. that was a long walk, believe me. <laughs> long walk. I'll bet
2: you. I'll bet you. Uh, strategically, I love what Honchi had to say about uh, the further away you are, the further the weapon, the closer, the shorter the weapon. It's, mm. it's so simple, but it's so poignant. Um, <sighs> uh, you know, honestly, Hanchi, like, you're so, like, you look good. You have such a good memory. You're so articulate. You just seem so sharp. Um, you chose your goals and you moved yourself forward and you, the right people came around you. Um, again, thoughts about the how versus the why. I love that. Like some people are doing karate because they want to know how to do it. And some people do karate because they want to learn why they're doing it. That, that's, um, I love that analyze, apply. I wrote a little ideogram here about analyze, Um, I love your answer to the question where there was no hesitation. Your first sensei was your major influence. Mm. That's your first sensei. I remember Sensei Legacy saying a long time ago to me, which seems like a long time to me, but maybe not to you. Um, Well, it's my 31st year in karate this September. So I've been in karate for 31 years now. And he said, once you put your naked foot in my dojo, you'll never be the same again. (laughs) Absolutely. Right? That's that's so true. And uh, really, I really want to think a lot about what you said about uh, Miyazato Sensei and how you would go early in the morning and nobody would be there. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that very personal thing about how you trained. That's that's what this show, when these interviews are about, mm-hmm. is about people learning just through us having a conversation with you, not a lecture, not 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 you telling us what you want us to know, just having a conversation and the information coming out and everybody getting to learn from that information. So I'm so extremely grateful to have the opportunity to learn from you tonight. And thank you so much. And I really super look forward to talking to you again, many more times, I hope.
3: Anytime.
0: Yes, Sensei. I, I get the I, I get the sort of uh g- last thing before we give it to you. Um first thing I wanna say before I address uh Hanshi Merriman is uh just from uh the show perspective, there's so many people who make this show happen. And I just wanna shout out to uh Robert Schlumsky, Mike Russell, Victoria Feth Justin Shea, Alden Adair, Andre Sedeshev, and uh just they're the people who run behind the scenes. This doesn't happen without them. Um <laughs> Sensei Dofan, do we want to talk about next week's episode? Well, so
2: next week, sorry, so that's, that's me. So next week, we're going to go back to uh, bare bones where uh, myself, uh, Sensei Legacy, Sensei Benson, and Sensei Sfino, the four of us are just going to get together and chat. Uh, if you have questions for us, you can send them in. Other, and you don't have to sign in. We're putting it on the internet whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the four Uh-oh. of us are going to sit down. Yeah. <laughs> And we're just going to have a chat about, uh, whatever strikes our fancy, uh, next Thursday night. Um, but I know there's, I want to thank a bunch of people have sent me emails saying, don't forget about this person. Don't forget about this person. Don't forget about this person. There's a long list of people. Mm -hmm. um, And they're all very well-deserved. Um, some of the ones right now that we're talking about, I know we're going to take a little bit of a break, but some of the people we're talking about is, uh, uh, Kyoshi Marian Barkowski, She's one that we're, we want to have on. Uh, I know a friend and an acquaintance of Sensei Suino's, uh, Sensei Paul Martin. We're looking to have him come on very soon. Um, I'm very excited to have Sensei Moni Guest come on. He's, uh, I chatted with him on the phone and he said he would do it. And I'm very excited to chat with him. And uh, you know, through this, a person that I've gotten to know only through Facebook is Sensei Sam uh, Moledsky. And I think he'd be a great person to have on uh, soon. But again, like I said, so I think that's in the immediate future. Um, but who knows? Who knows who we'll be talking to?
0: Thanks, it can't really it. get
2: much. It can't get much better than it was tonight. So, uh-huh.
0: <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. And I'm so excited for next week's, you know, to have the sort of hosts chat. Uh, I think we called it. I'm really excited for that. And, and a lot of it is that. I'm excited to unpack. I mean, we'll have done 17 guests and next week we get to unpack that. And to to be like, wow, like these ideas that are coming in, there's so many and it's so wonderful. Um, Hanshi Merriman, I just, you know, Sensei Nofan touched on this a bit, but the utter plainness with which you're describing your own experience, your own journey, the people you met, your perceptions on them, the way you perceive a bunkai, the way you have space for other people to perceive it or, or apply it or analyze it a different way. I, I, I'm just a bit of what Hanshi Legacy said that uh, I'm just listening tonight and just, I feel like I'm not only getting to know you, but I'm getting a karate lesson. And I just want to thank you for that. And and I I obviously have an interest in the way that those bodies touching meets with the striking. And and I really got a lot from what you said tonight. So Mm. I really look forward to it. And and a bit of what Sensei Suino said too, like we barely even got out of your New York years before we just kind of had to flash forward. And I think there's so much to talk about again. Um, To everybody watching, we love you. We're so glad you're here. And I'm going to give the last word to Hanshi Merriman to say goodnight.
3: Again, I want to thank you guys for inviting me. And uh, I really enjoyed this as uh, I learned also, just from listening to you guys, the questions you ask also, um, that uh, it's uh, you shouldn't never let anything stand in the way of your passion. You'll find a way. If you want it bad enough, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. So either way, it, uh, the situation will take care of itself. But um, I get to see, I haven't seen Sensei Legacy and I don't even want to say how many years, but it's been a long time yes, and to sir. even to say hello to him. That's been, that's been great. And uh, one of the things I, one of my jokes now, as I say, uh, I hear people talking, you know, about their experience at karate is so how long have you been training? Oh, I've been training 30, 30 years now. Oh, really? And I say, my comeback is, I got a gee older than that. <laughs> 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 so I get I get to make those jokes now. But uh, maybe uh, when we get back to uh, where we could travel again and everything, and I get up to Canada, uh, I'm going to definitely make a, a, a trip back up soon. I haven't been up there in a while. Um, uh, fortunately, here in, in Phoenix, a friend of mine is here, which I uh, think since their legacy knows, uh, uh, John Atkinson. Yeah. And John's here. So John and I always stay connected. And um, uh, I still know Canada's special to me. And the people, the martial artists there too, are very special to me. Um, they came up at the same time. I came up, and had a lot of interaction with them. And uh, I feel always feel at home when I come up to Canada. You're always welcome. Thank you. Well, the way things are going in my country, it might be sooner than I, <laughs> 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 I might be knocking on your door.
0: <laughs> OK. It'll be open. <laughs>
3: thank you. Um, thank you,
0: Hanchi. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week. Really excited. Take care. Thank
1: you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much.